think of the great John Burman, a list of classic films simply spring to mind. The Taylor of Panama, The General, Deliverance, Hope and Glory, The Emerald Forest, Excalibur, and of course, Point Blank, his classic film with Lee Marvin. He is one of the best directors Britain has ever produced, and he's a subject of a classic retrospective uh, at the BFI right now, and he received a BFI Fellowship recently, which is the highest honour that the BFI can bestow. He lives in Ireland currently, but he came to England to pick up the BFI Fellowship, and we seized upon the chance to lure him into our pod booth and have a chat about his fantastic career. He was talking to Nick Desemlian, Phil Desemlian, and myself, Chris Hewitt. It is a fantastic interview. Please enjoy. Uh, we are delighted to be joined in the pop booth by a veritable legend of British cinema, Mr. John Boorman. Hello, sir. How are you? Well, I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you for coming in. Uh, at such short notice, indeed. And uh, because you were over this week, uh, you received a huge honour the other day, uh, the BFI Fellowship uh, down at the BFI South Bank. Uh, what does that mean to you? Well, it means uh, quite a lot. Uh, because the BFI has been big part of my life uh, when the National Film Theatre opened in 1951 on the on the South Bank I was there I was 18 mm. and I haunted the place <laughs> uh, watching all the glories of the silent cinema uh-huh. but I, I do wonder I look back at your filmography and I wonder if you would have liked to have made uh, for example Excalibur with the techniques that are now available or perhaps even the Lord of the Rings might have might have happened for you, had you been. Well, yes, I. I, I mean, the, when I was United Artists had the rights for Lord of the Rings, and when I went to them and asked, I said I wanted to make the uh, a film about the Arthurian legend, and um, they said, "Well, we've got Lord of the Rings. Why don't you do that?" Mm. And I spent a long time with Rosper Pallenberg. We made um, made a script which took months, and part of. R- writing that script was also um, finding techniques in which we could do the effects and uh, my solution was I was going to cast the Hobbits 10 year old boys mm-hmm. and dub adult voices onto them okay. and, and, and stick uh, hair onto their feet uh-huh. uh, so mm, had I made that film uh Peter Jackson owes me a huge debt because if had I made that film, <coughs> the world would have been denied his uh, a magnificent trilogy. Indeed. Um, and uh, but but interesting enough, in researching effects for, yeah. for, for Lord of the Rings, I applied them in to Excalibur. Excalibur, there's a lot of effects in Excalibur, mm. all done in the camera. Mm-hmm. Almost only one or two. Optical, opticals were done. Uh, everything else was done in the camera using those old techniques like uh, glass shots and uh, superimpositions. Yes. Yeah. And it was, uh, and and there's something there's something pure about that, really, yeah. uh, which I think um, I don't I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's, maybe it's felt by audiences uh, now of course it used to be that um, when we watched a film we knew that what we were looking at had, had occurred at some point in time and place mm. and now we can't be sure audience, it's made audiences very the computer generated imagery 
has made audiences very cynical. <laughs> yes. You know, when, when I did, I made a film, Taylor of Panama. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey, right at the end, Jeffrey Rush is making pancakes for his kids, and he holds the pan in one hand and the plate in the other, and he tosses the pancake into the air and catches it in the plate. And you've no idea how many people said to me, that was done in the computer. <laughs> you know, I mean, anything that looks at all um, at all tricky, yeah. uh, they sneer at it. You know? <laughs> I'm curious, just going back to Lord of the Rings, what was your approach to Gollum going to be, creating that character? Ah, oh, that was interesting. Um, uh, again, um, I was relying on ten-year-old boys mm. <laughs> in heavy costumes, mm. <laughs> and and we did devise um, uh, an an eye system, uh, and I called on all you know the great um, special effects men in America to come and help me with it all, and it was splendid. Yeah. And uh, that was a one-film deal for you, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. There, there was never any talk of splitting it into two parts or three parts. Because no. I, I, I'm flabbergasted that you even managed to get a script. That was that must have been some task. Well, film is the um, art of compression, mm. and we compress that so much it almost um, uh, self ex ex exploded within. <laughs> But no, it's it, it, you know, and I last night at the uh, this uh, event at the BFI, uh, I met a young guy who was doing. Informed me he was making three films about the Arthurian legend, and indeed, <laughs> it was, you know, I, that was something I did. I was determined to make a film, which covered the whole span of the of the myth. Yeah from the birth of Arthur uh, through to Camelot to, and then into the loss of the Grail and the wasteland and the quest for the for the Grail and because I think you know if you show the whole span of the myth it has much more power mm. most people tend to take one one portion of the story and that's probably wiser in some respects mm. but um, anyway this young guy is making three films about the Arthurian legend, and that seems to be a uh, a trend, doesn't it? To make yeah. the Hobbit, the poor little Hobbit, is, is being expanded into three. The Hobbit is in three. Uh, Lord of the Rings was three, obviously. And we have TV series. Were you, did you watch the BBC show Merlin, for example? No, I didn't actually. No, <laughs> which uh, which had John Hurt in it, and uh, and stretched it out over five seasons, yeah. the whole story. So. It's interesting that you you aim for single films with Excalibur and Lord of the Rings, and uh, the the collapse of Lord of the Rings, and uh, your desire to make a movie about the Arthurian legend, that inspired Sardos ultimately as well, didn't it? That led elements of yeah. your Lord of the Rings led into Sardos. Yes, yes, it did. I mean, Zardos. Well, the inspiration of Zardos really was uh, was uh, uh, not the legend so much as r really the Wizard of Oz yeah and because this uh, the idea of controlling uh, uh, the mass of people through a, a kind of wizard, wizard of Oz kind of figure that was what was my starting point there mm -hmm. okay so this is a uh, queen and country mm. this is your uh, follow up to hope and glory yeah. and how's that going 
Well, it's 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 uh, it's going um, it's going all right, but um, of course, you know, putting my getting money together for a, an independent film is as ever very difficult. Mm. And you know, you put it together from several sources, and then one thing falls out, and uh, you have to try and fill it in. And it's like, and sometimes you feel like, uh, sometimes you're made to feel as though you're committing a criminal act by trying to make a film uh, and you're a pariah in society and why do you want to make this film uh, and this I guess it's always been the case you know it's just a different set of problems when you're working for a studio yeah uh, which has got much 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 more difficult now because um, the they have so many executives now who are crawling all over you and although you know you, you know, fight your corner there's a process of erosion takes place mm -hmm. um, it just um, you know Taylor Panama was the last studio picture I did which mm -hmm. was for Sony mm -hmm. and uh, uh, the bureaucracy involved is is so mm, debilitating and what they are doing is trying to make the film you're the script you're making into fit the, the formula and the formula is to do with a certain structure that, that films have to conform to uh, and because of the way films are distributed in America particularly um, originality is the enemy mm. because how do you market you can't market I mean, I mean I've you know I've been pitching a, I remember pitching a, uh, a script to one of the majors and they said to me well what's the 30 second TV ad I couldn't I you know I was completely flawed I couldn't come up with anything and they said, well, you know, if we can't express it in the 30-second TV ad, we shouldn't make it. Wow, Because okay. that's, how we, that's, how we, that's how we market uh -huh. films. So if you have, you know, Bruce Willis holding a gun, you know what to expect. If, if, it's, if there's any complexity in the story, you, you, they can't manage it. And that's, you know, it used to be, used to be that films opened in America you know, with one print in New York, another in LA, and one in Chicago, mm. and they would slowly, gradually roll it out. This is all gone completely now. It's all about the first weekend and, and 3,000 prints <sighs> and $20 million worth of marketing. Yeah. And, and you know, I think, uh, 2001, I saw in the Cinerama Dome in Los Angeles on the first day, I thought it was fantastic, and I phoned Kubrick and I, you know, so I was such a landmark film. And, well, it opened up. Uh, the reviews were very tepid, mm -hmm. and the business wasn't very good for the first weekend. And it just it sat there for a few weeks and gradually yes. gathered a reputation. Mm. Now, had that opened in today's market, it would have died on the yeah. first weekend. We'd never have heard of it again. Mm. And and so that's a so sobering thought, isn't it? In terms of 
movies. Oh, it is indeed. I mean, it's hard to imagine, for example, something like Deliverance being made. Uh, can you know, boiling that down to a thirty-second TV spot would be quite tricky, I imagine. Yeah. Yes. I can't, I mean, I can't, I'm not asking you to do no. it. Right. <laughs> yeah, come up with one right now. <laughs> but it would be quite tricky. I'm thinking Zardos. I mean, that must have been a, a difficult one. Was that was that one of the projects where the studio were particularly antagonistic? Or? Well, I just made Deliverance, so I was, you know, quite hot at the time, and um, so. But still, we we had great difficulty getting it made. And David Beagleman was my agent at the time, hmm. and uh, you know he. Um, it was a marvellous, very clever agent. He eventually shot himself uh, in a hotel room, which was uh, <laughs> in response to uh, the way the, the industry was going. <laughs> I think, but he, it, he, 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 well, how he got that thing going? He went to Fox. Uh, was taken over by Gordon Stolberg. And they were looking at pictures. And he said to Gordon, "Do you want to? Would you like to make a film with Borman?" And he said, "Yes, we would." Okay. He said, "Here's the deal. You come to London. We give you the script. You have two hours to read it, and you just have a, a, a yes or a no. And no, you have no approvals. It'd be a negative pickup. We'll make the picture for a million dollars. Negative pickup." You have no cast approvals or anything. Just a yes or a no. So, Beelman and I went out to lunch while he read the script at, at the offices of ICM. And uh, I was very nervous. And David said, don't worry, it's fine. It's going to be fine. Eat your lunch. <laughs> he was, David had this extraordinary air of sincerity that was almost real. Mm. And uh, when, so we got back and we sat in the outer office and, and Gordon appeared and he held the script in his hand and his hand was shaking and he's probably had a lot of jet lag as well <laughs> and the ha I remember it was backlit and his the script was f sort of fluttering in his hand like this because he was so nervous and he looked wide-eyed and clearly had no idea what it was about or anything. <laughs> and David Beagleman went up to him and said, Gordon, congratulations. He never had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first thing that people think of uh, when they think of Zardos is that extraordinary costume that Sean wears. Uh, where did that Where did that come from? And, and what was uh, Sean Connery's reaction when, when he was shown that for the first time? He didn't uh, object to it in any way, and the whole idea was that these um, he represented a, a, a kind of clan of special brutals who had this red costume, these red uh, uh, belts of ammunition, and it was the the whole red thing was very important. So. Uh, yeah, I don't know why people picked up on it so strongly, because uh, 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 Sean wasn't concerned. I mean, if you, and if you had a body like Sean, you didn't care what you <laughs> what you looked like, what you wore. Fair enough. Indeed. Um, I wanted to bring up your lifelong friendship with with Lee Marvin. 
yeah. um, which started in the sort of mid to late 60s with in your first partnership point blank and I remember watching an interview that you did on a documentary about Leo a few years ago where you told a beautiful story about how you were, you were doing the Alcatraz scene in a complex setup and, and were struggling slightly yeah. with some of the dynamics and he helped you enormously in that scene um, yes yeah well that was you know we it was right at the end of the shoot and I was kind of exhausted we we come up late that night to San Francisco from LA and we were shooting the next morning on Alcatraz and I just sort of kind of blanked out I just I couldn't uh, work I just couldn't work out the shots for the scene we were shooting and I was kind of um, and Lee came over to me and he said um, are you in, are you in trouble and I said I just trying to work this out you know and so he then went over and started to roar and sing and fall, f fell over and crashed into people and <laughs> did an incredible drunk drunk act and <laughs> and the and the production manager came over to me and said have you seen the state Lee's in we can't shoot on him you know I will get him some coffee and we're trying to wow. so I was off the hook, you know. <laughs> Did you? And I, I, once, once the pressure was off, you know, it only took me ten minutes to figure it all yeah. out. And I had, uh, and I went over to Lee and told him I was just ready to go. <laughs> he made this incredible recovery from complete drunkenness to complete sobriety. <laughs> Did but you? he was, uh, no, I mean, he was such a support to me. When I, you know, we <clears throat> we met in London. He was doing the Dirty Dozen, and, and um, uh, I. Uh, we talked, met several times, and we, I talked about what we, what we can do uh, and um, how I wanted to do it. And he knew better than I did how difficult it was going to be to make a film of that nature mm. in uh, within the Hollywood system. Mm. So when when I got out there, he called a meeting with the head of MGM and the producers, and he said um, he reminded them that he had um, in his contract script approval and cast approval and they said yes you do and he, he said I defer those approvals to John <laughs> and he turned on his heel and walked out you've never seen so many people <laughs> so agape and aghast yeah. at this uh, pale young man standing there <laughs> having uh, <laughs> divested them of all their power is it true that he threw the script out of a window as well at one point well, that was when we were discussing the script, and <laughs> Lee had been given the script, and I was given the script by this producer Judd Bernard. And it was and when we first met, Lee said, "What do you think of this script?" I said, "It's really bad." And he said, "I agree." So, what are we talking about? And I said, "Well, the, I, you know, I think the character is interesting." And we then he was staying at this apartment, his flat in London, and we met a few times and developed the idea, and and. Um, Finally, he said, "Okay, I'll do this flick with you." I always call them flicks. Mm. On one condition, and he threw the script out of the window. <laughs> and then, uh, years later, Mel Gibson yes. sent me a script of re and telling me he's going to remake Point Blank. Mm -hmm. Um. So I read the script and I could only imagine that a very young 
Mel Gibson was passing <laughs> picked this script out of the gutter because it, it bore a strong resemblance to that original script. <laughs> so did Mel, had he sent the script to you to ask for some sort of tacit approval or was this no, free just, to direct? Uh, he just said, you know, I, 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 I knew Mel quite well and mm-hmm. he, he as, it was a, a, a graceful yeah. Uh, uh, gesture. Yeah, because Brian Helgeland was... Uh, yeah. yeah, and... Anyway, I was in America. I was promoting the general, I think, at the time, and he. Uh, I told this story a few times to journalists. They always ask me, "Ask me, what did you? Uh, have you heard about Mel Gibson remaking Point Black?" Mm-hmm. And so, I get a call from Mel. It's John. You've got to stop telling this story. The <laughs> studio is getting very nervous. <laughs> no, really. I don't suppose you had a similar phone call from Wolfgang Peterson potentially for enemy mine no I didn't no. <laughs> <laughs> did you see that film yeah. no I which, didn't which was obviously kind yeah. of a remake of Hell in the Pacific, Hell in the Pacific yeah. um, you and Lee and the great Tisha and Mufuni working together and all three of you had very pronounced experiences of the of the war yeah. uh, and they'd both been on opposite sides in, in the Pacific campaign yeah. what, how did they sort of because it was a very tight intimate two character yeah. piece really how did they kind of gel together <sighs> Not well, I have to say. Uh, I mean, I think Lee Lee was an enormous admirer of Mafuni as an actor, and and although Mafuni's war experience was, he was a quartermaster, and one of his jobs was uh, giving sake to um, uh, kamikaze pilots before they left. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> they, you'd need a drink, wouldn't you, if you're going to dive the plane into it? <laughs> I'll take one for the flight. <laughs> uh, so, well, it was fraught the whole thing because I decided. I, I mean, I, I, if I'd been older and wiser, I would have shot the whole film in Hawaii. <laughs> but um, you know, I was determined to shoot on this tiny island, and um, and so we had to live on a ship, mm. and it, it was a Chinese ship. And we had a Japanese film crew, which is mainly uh, uh, Toshira's yes. people. <clears throat> and when we, when I was preparing the script, I had two writers, an American writer and, and Shobo Hashimoto, who uh, wrote a lot for Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. And it was a torturous process. It was the most difficult script I've ever written because it was there was no dialogue there were only two characters and uh, so and I wanted the film to work if you were Japanese or English speaking so we translated them back and forth we, I we, I'd ta- talked to the two writers about a scene we talked about the scene and how it should be and so forth they'd each go and do a draft and we'd translate them back and forward and then I'd select them and, and, and we gradually built up an arduous and painful process and at one point, Toshiro, um, rather, Shobo Hashimoto, um, he was a big gambler. He wanted to go to Las Vegas. Uh, so could I, could, I, could I go off for a couple of weeks, he said, and do a draft. Mm. And he, so he did, and he came back with this draft. He didn't change any of the scenes. What he did was change the character of Mifune, mm-hmm. and he changed him into a kind of buffoon, 
rather like the character he plays in Seven Samurai. Yes. So when we went, got out to shoot the first day, I was absolutely horrified. I mean, somehow or other, either maliciously or accidentally, Shobu Hashimoto had given Mifuni this script, the buffoon script, <laughs> which I had rejected. Yes. And so uh, it was, um, I couldn't believe it when he started to act. And I said, no, no, not like that, you know. And I said, Look, what you must do is this, this, and this. He just listened, stony-faced, did another take. He didn't change anything at all. <laughs> and nor would he in the third or the fourth take. And it, it was, I had to stop shooting. He was, uh, he, it, for him, it was an incredible loss of faith to be corrected in front of, you know, a, mm. a, a Japanese crew yeah. by someone. Um, and uh, so we stopped shooting and we we talked half the night tried to put the whole thing right and and went out the next day and we shot and it was fine and we, the next scene he behaved in exactly the same way and it was it was torture it was absolute torture uh, and eventually we got behind and uh, the th yeah, I just really felt the thing was <clears throat> getting out of out of hand completely, and then I got badly injured in a, on the, a miniature tsunami. Uh, uh, Conrad Hall, the camera, and I were on this platform in the reef, and it, it, it fell over, and I it was knocked over. Mm. And I got a coral poisoning in my oh. knee, and I'd, I was in fever for day, several days, and the producers. Rushed over and uh, went to Mifuni and said, "Well, you know, Borman is sick, and uh, you'll be glad to hear we're going to replace him." So Mifuni said, "I couldn't agree to that." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "But you, you, you don't get on. Uh, you hate him." Yeah. He said, "Yes," um, but he said, "I." Uh, we went to the tea house in Tokyo, and we made a toast, sake, and I agreed to do the film with him. It's a matter of honor. Yes. And mm. the producer said, listen, this is Hollywood. Honor doesn't <laughs> Can you sum up the film in a 30-second TV spot? <laughs> you know, that's the key. Can you do that? I mean, that, 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 that film, I mean, I, I also read somewhere that, um, that Lee and yourself were traveling to the set in an, in an airplane and you lost power. Is that, is that correct? And you nearly died on your way to start filming the movie. Which is surely well, a sign. No, no, that's very exaggerated. What happened was, before we started shooting, on the ship we had a, a little, one of those little bubble helicopters, mm -hmm. so we could go and look at, and I was, he wasn't in the, he wasn't in the helicopter. We went okay. out, uh, and a, a big a tropical storm came in and pushed us further and further out, could you, and then we ran out of fuel, and we, we had uh, floats, so we just came down. Um, no, it was... No, there were hazards. It was hazardous. Hmm. Sounds so like one of those films that where the making of documentary could have the same title as the actual movie itself. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty excruciating. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of my favourite films, which is Hope and Glory, and uh, which is, I guess, your most personal film. Um, there's one particular scene that I love when the school is destroyed by a stray Luftwaffe bomb 
and and one of the kids runs out and shouts, "Thank you, Mr. Hitler! <laughs> Thank you, Adolf! <laughs> Thank you, Adolf!" Yeah. Was that was that a personal? Was that actually autobiographical? That moment, or? Yes, it was. Um, it was. It was. I I was, um, you know, uh, eight or nine years old, and uh, I went back to school first day of back to school, and um, arrived into the playground and the, the all the kids were cheering and shouting and the joy was unconfined <laughs> and behind them was the smoking ruins of the school <laughs> and uh, we <laughs> went back home <laughs> it was yeah the, the, the boy says looks up in the air and says thank you Adolf <laughs> how long were you uh, when did you get the idea to continue that story with Queen and Country um well, I had the idea straight after making Hope and Glory. I had the idea of I had the idea of a, two two films. One, one, which is one I'm trying to make now, Queen and Country, which was nine years later when I was eighteen. I had to go in the army for two years, and it was it coincided with the Korean War and uh, the death of the king mm. and the enthronement of uh, Queen Elizabeth, and it was about being eighteen and knowing everything and trying to yeah. thrust that upon the world you told me in Cannes uh, just, just under a year ago that you had finished the script for that have you left the script alone or have you been going back to it since and adding I, I'm on the 10th draft at the moment okay has it changed considerably in that year or uh, tweaks quite a bit quite a bit but I think um, it was rather like when I was read the script Hope and Glory I started off by just uh setting out all the the key incidents that I remembered as a child and um, then I started to dramatise it and invent things and when I'd finished the script I, I, I thought I'd better show it to my mother and my older sister Wendy who figures heavily in it and um, they read it and they were both a kind of astonished that several of the things I thought I'd invented had actually occurred <laughs> and somehow or other particularly you know about my mother having an affair with my father's best friend and Wendy's uh, going off uh, with this uh, French Canadian soldier and and uh, so somehow or other these things which were hidden from a child had somehow found their way into my mm. imagination many Oscar nominations for Hope and Glory but one that escaped it was Sarah Miles who I think is phenomenal in the film um, there's a lot of kind of apocryphal stories around actors one of them is that she was quite difficult to, to get on set at times Yes. and also another one that she had a very unusual kind of health regimen I don't know if you know anything about, about that drinking her urine you mean yeah <laughs> she didn't persuade you to of she its benefits <laughs> <laughs> she was difficult to coax onto set in, in in the day because she was apprehensive of the scenes or lacking you know, confidence. Uh, you know, I know actors who you know throw up before they go on set. You know, and I'm s astonished that people are. You know, I've always been so grateful that people are prepared to act, get up in front of a camera, and simulate emotions. You know, it's a, and make fools of themselves. It's a, and and she would always have a reason for not getting onto the set you know oh buttons come off or and and of course then eventually I, I 
she's one of the few actors who've enraged me. And, and I, I, in the end, I'd, I'd shout at her. And then, of course, she'd cry. Oh. And then, of course, all the makeup had to be done again. <laughs> so, and, and on one occasion, when the four sisters are a string quartet, you know, mm. the, the grandfather says, four daughters, what could you do with four daughters? I asked myself. A string quartet was the only thing I could come up with. And so <laughs> we have a scene of the string quartet. And, of course... Uh, she's there and they've all been practicing and taking lessons and everything and she skipped all her lessons and she's on this fucking cello and she and I so again I lose my temper in with her and why why is it that all the others can do it and you can't Sarah well you know I've my husband's a cripple and I have to go and look after him at night and then when I get home and I said well why did you take the part if you are not able to yeah. do it so we have this burst into tears I have to get my makeup done and oh, I say no no we're going to shoot on it right now like, just <laughs> as it is and I did and uh, um, uh, she never forgave me for that uh, but she didn't but it cured her of, um, of bursting into tears yeah. I can imagine it would. Yes. You seem to have worked with a lot of actors who kind of have a reputation for being quite willful and opinionated. Is that something that you look for? Do you, do you enjoy the a bit of clashing with people or people with strong opinions? I never find, you know, the <clears throat> the best actors are never a problem. It's always the ones who are a bit less good, second second rate, the ones who cause problems. The good ones are absolutely fine, and and and. No, I, I, I've never, never had great, great difficulties at all with, with a lot of strong actors, mm. with you know, with strong views, but mostly, um, mostly the problems. I try and sort out the problems before we start shooting in rehearsal. When I rehearse with actors, what I do, I don't act out the scenes or anything, but we talk about the scenes, and we, um, and work out what the scene is trying to achieve and where it's going and we get an mm. agreement on that and so when you get on the set you, you've already decided what's uh, which, which direction you're going in and so the problems don't really arise as long as there are no translators or scripts or you know yeah 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 um, <laughs> but, but going back to uh, point blank um because that was based obviously on the richard stark donald westlake yeah. novel the hunter and it was uh, the character's parker in, in those novels and you changed it quite deliberately to, to Walker yes. um, because that's based on a series of novels was there ever talk of you and Lee doing more films with Walker and adapting yeah, more well more? the the, the um, uh, and Winkler who were the producers they picked up another one on that series um, and uh, asked me to do it mm-hmm. um I didn't want to do that, so <laughs> they did it with somebody else, uh, and I think other, uh, I think other uh, stories in that series have been made. It was the uh, the outfit with Robert Duvall. Yes. Later on, and then obviously he's been remade uh, yeah. a couple of times now. Jason Statham's just made a film called Parker. There's also another great story about renaming uh, Parker Walker, and there's a great shot of Lee walking down the corridor. Um, which is one of the great walking shots in, in movie history. And you were saying in the documentary about Lee that uh, his widow 
gave you Lee's shoes. Yeah, she asked me to, you know, to, to, would I like to take a memento of Lee's? Mm. And uh, I said I'd have the shoes, yeah, that he wore in the, on that scene. Mm. And they are currently sitting uh, at the mm, at the BFI South Bank. They have an exhibition of. Uh, mementos and mm. things from my films mm. and I've, I gave them the shoes to the <laughs> 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 and, and it, it, yeah the, the mm, uh, when I was making that film I wanted this um, stark bleakness mm. and that scene we shot in the airport and so the assistant director said wow, what a bigger crowd do you want going for the airport, you must, you must, we must have a crowd, you know. Mm. I said, no, no, I don't want anybody. <laughs> and what's more, there were these um, planters, you know, with with palms and things going down the length of it. Yes. And I said, we'll get rid of all those. Uh -huh. Anything in the film, in the story at all. And um, uh, and, and I, that policy I followed through all through all through the film, mm. stark, openly, um, and uh, this. Uh, uh, you know this concrete city, mm. and yet it was you were shooting at the time, the sort of height of height Ash Pay Ashbury in yes. San Francisco in the hippie flower power era. Yeah. Was that a fun place to be well, at that you time? Know, it was, you? It, originally, the the script was set in San Francisco, the whole thing, and I went up there. It, as you say, it was the time of height Ashbury. I went up there, and when uh, you know everything was topless at the time. And uh, uh, which is quite amusing, um, uh, up to a point, you know, topless waitresses and all that. But where I thought it, where it really went over the top was a, a topless shoe shine. <laughs> um, Man or female? Female, of course. <laughs> and <laughs> there are a lot of swinging breasts. Uh, in the course of polishing shoes and that, that's when I gave up on San Francisco <laughs> that's when I would have moved to San Francisco but that's, <laughs> that's another story I've read, uh, I've read a couple of things I was wondering if you could confirm or deny one was an interview with John Voigt last year he said that on, on Deliverance you would after you, you got a take that you liked you'd cup your hand over the camera lens so that the, the ed, they wouldn't have any other options in the editing room yeah I did that on Point Blank too actually Okay. I was uh, I was convinced that uh, people would try try to meddle with it, and uh, but you know that was mainly uh, dealing with Voigt. Voigt was very much a, a, a actor studio mm. and kind of the kind of actor who uh, the first five or six takes were to warm up on. Okay, and I always I said I, you know you've got to be ready with the first take. I don't want to. Go rehearse on film, and that was the very first mm, sh shot we did, I think. And did the take, put my hand over the lens, cut. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! What? Are we, what, what? Why? Why? Why we? I, you know, I'm, I, I can do more. I can do more. I said, oh, it was fine. That was fine. <laughs> but he, but John was. You know, in a very bad way, when I tried to cast him, uh, he he had made a film called The All-American Boy, mm -hmm. which was unreleasable. 
<laughs> and he was he spent months trying to get it, put it together and it was and he was contemplating giving up acting um, and I had a tremendous difficulty getting him to do the film in fact you know we spent endless conversations and one occasion we were on the phone and I, I, I was at the end of my tether and I said John um, I'm I'm going to count to ten and you either have to say yes or no I can't go on with this endlessly <laughs> so I started counting you know, and he said wait a minute wait a minute why ten <laughs> at least count to thirty you know? <laughs> and so <laughs> and I said no no it's ten and I counted to ten he didn't hadn't responded I put the phone down I thought oh, oh, fuck it I've lost him <laughs> a few minutes later he called back he said okay I'll do it <laughs> and he told everybody after he said you know John saved my life by casting me in that film really he saved my life wow he then spent eight weeks trying to kill me <laughs> <laughs> talking of talking of deliverance we for an article a few years back we tracked down the banjo um, yeah. playing kid who now uh, co-owns a cafe in Georgia um, did you know at the time that, that how iconic the banjo stuff and the dueling banjo scene was going to be well um it was always an important part, uh, the, 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 the banjo and, and that, and dueling banjos, which uh, I always uh, had it in mind to make that the kind of uh, musical theme of the film. And it was only when uh, Warners were beating me up over the budget and I'd cut everything out I could, I'd, and I, I didn't have a dis, uh, art director on the film mm. at all. Okay. It was did it all on location with local labor and and it was paired I think they had no confidence in the film you know they they did everything they could to stop me making it and so the um the finally I had a budget in the budget I had a money for a composer and an orchestra and I so I thought okay I'll, that's the only thing I can cut I cut that out and just uh recorded Variations on the theme of dueling banjos mm. in a recording studio for um, two hours. That was the score. Uh, so it was very uh, important. But um, no, it, it, no, I had no idea that it would be uh, it would catch people's imagination in the way it did. And Tim Burton paid tribute to it in his film Big Fish. He brought yes, Billy Redman back the, for it. Yes, yeah. he cast that boy. Yeah. It's amazing. The other thing I read um, was that at some point it, it claims that you, it's in development now is a film about Chernobyl with Helen Mirren. Where does that come from? Is this, <laughs> these things to get onto the internet. That sounded like nonsense to me. Mel Gibson. So yeah, no, no yeah, truth. Mel Gibson. It's like um, I don't know. I may have made it up at some point. You know? <laughs> uh, when uh, you know when you when you promoting a film, you're doing one interview after another. The only way you can stay awake is to start varying it and inventing things, you know, to just amuse yourself. <laughs> and, and in the age of the internet, everything gets on there. Okay. And you've no idea how many people have asked me that question. Really? You really can't throw any scripts out the window anymore because they get picked up and put on the internet with an email back to you. It's fact. Um, and what about, because uh, you, you, you say that uh, the crew and yourself stayed on a ship during the making of Hell in the Pacific. Yes. What about Deliverance? How did you how did you survive during that? Were you living well, in... Well, we, we stayed in a, a little town called Clayton, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And 
it was um, it had a sign as you came into Clayton, Georgia. It said, "Clayton, Georgia, where where spring spends the summer." <laughs> it was up in the hills. That's great. And and so we s s we stayed there and we rehearsed there and we started out from there, and then you know we this this river was you know I I chose the most difficult river I could possibly find <laughs> <laughs> because I always mm, I've, I'm I'm cured now I think but I always felt that unless I was suffering intense pain I wasn't doing my job. <laughs> And uh, this, so this river, you, you could only get into it at certain points, and we had to get, you know, four-wheel drive vehicles to get in, and it, the four actors and I would uh, get into the canoes, and we'd go down the river, to, and then at a, a certain point they'd pick us up again. Mm -hmm. So we were mostly on the river, just the four actors, mm -hmm. Vilmos Sigmund, the cameraman, mm -hmm. and um, Grip. Well. And and then we sh we shot it, and we didn't even record sound. Some of the sequences with dialogue, we didn't even record a guide track. And there was a very amusing incident when when I put the film together and I got the actors in to come do the the ADR. So as a guide, I put my voice on all four characters, <laughs> and so. So that they have a, had a guide, you know? yeah. and uh, the, the first the first scene that came up, I had the four actors in the studio. They laughed so much, they couldn't work. <laughs> they couldn't work. They just wanted to see it again. Now just show it to us again. We want to see it again. <laughs> Were you trying to do their voices? Do you, do you do a mean? Bow a Reynolds? little bit, you know. I was, you know, it was pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious whether you've ever crossed paths with Werner Herzog and had a chance to swap mm. swap horror stories with him. With See, he, with Werner Herzog, he's obviously shot some. Uh, yeah, well, I met him. Yeah, I, I, I think he certainly had that. He certainly has uh, um, a masochist yeah. and uh, Klaus Kinski as well, obviously. Yes, but that goes back, John, to what we were saying about the. Um, shooting in the Emerald Forest before yeah. Kieran interrupted us with the phone call mm. uh, and the idea of the first day weeding out the man from the boys so to speak by, yes. by choosing what was the scene you were shooting you were choosing something really difficult well it was uh, a scene it was on part of the river there were a lot of rocks and I said to the uh, the key grip I said I, I want to I want to I want you to lay tracks across those rocks and he gulped and um and of course, we, we had to carry all the equipment into the mm. hand carry all the equipment in, into the. And uh, anyway, he didn't say anything. But the next day, he left. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the key grip left on the first day of shooting. Wow. Okay. Did you replace him, or did you just? No, we replaced. Yeah, we yeah. had someone else come over. But, but it was. Um, it they they got weeded out. It was rather. It did separate the men from the boys. That <laughs> picture. So if Queen of, if Queen and Country takes off because uh, it, it clearly has an element in the Korean War, will that be shot on location? Are you looking to get back into the into the fray in that way, or will you be based in well, based it, in London? It, we're planning to shoot it at Shepparton Film okay. Studios, and some of it takes place on the river at Shepparton, uh, okay. which is where I was living in, yeah. as, uh, at that time, and um, and so yeah, we're building a. 
army camp in um, mm -hmm. in Shepparton. Nice and contained. And uh, the last thing, John, is um, before we let you go, um, one of the guests we've had in that chair before you was William Friedkin. Mm -hmm. And obviously you have Exorcist movies in common. Have you ever talked about, have you ever met William Friedkin and talked about your Exorcist experiences together? No, I, I know him well enough, but we've mm -hmm. never, I think it's a, a, a subject which is off limits. <laughs> <laughs> for you or for him? Hmm. For both. For both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, John Berman, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, John.